morning, everyone. We are in a series, if you're not uh, used to being with us, called Follow Me. It's just very simple. And it's about following Jesus in real time. We're moving through the Gospel of Mark as we do that. And one of the things about being a follower of Jesus is that if you're really seriously going to follow him, he's going to change your life. He's going to ask you to allow him to change you. And a lot of us don't like change. How many of you don't like change? Just be honest, all right? Well, you're going to get changed today, all right? Because you can't, you can't stay where you are and go with God. You have to let him change your life. So my prayer is that we'll be open to letting him do that. See, we're going to look at a very familiar story. You don't even have to be a Christian. Almost everybody's heard this story. And what we're going to discover is that, as well known as the story is, most of us are unfamiliar with what it really means. And you're going to be invited to participate in something very radical. So the story we're going to look at is found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, if you want to turn open there. And your Bibles that you have in the pews, it's like page 1531, something like that, 1531. And uh, it's a story that we're going to read together. While you do that, I'll welcome those on our campus and joining us online from really all over the world. We are a global community. So Mark chapter 6, why don't you stand uh, as we read God's Word in reverence for the Word. I'll read. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many people who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him this is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, they would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. And Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. May God bless his word. You can be seated. So like I said, it's a very familiar story. And as I was kind of thinking about that, because I mean, I've, I've heard this story since I've been a little kid. I thought, you know, if you were to open up a children's Bible, and oftentimes they have pictures that describe, you know, the scene, you, you might turn and find a, a beautiful picture like this. I mean, this is idyllic, right? It's, it's, just, it's just beautiful. Notice uh, how bright all the colors are of the, the robes that the people are wearing. It's almost as though they have just bought them, they've been laundered, and they've been pressed. 
if you notice that a lot of them have smiles on their faces, and a lot of them look uh, kind of fat and happy, and uh, they're all sitting on kind of a plush green grass carpet. You know, it's, the sun is setting, so there's this golden hue that's all around, and it's like everybody's having this amazing picnic. Jesus is well-groomed, and you realize all of a sudden that's just an artist's idea, and it is far from reality. Yes, a picnic happens. Yes, there are 5,000 men. Multiply that with women and children. It's estimated there could have been 10 to 15,000 people. This is quite an event. And I could tell you, you know, that there are some principles here we could explore. I could say, for instance, let's explore the principle that little is much in the hands of God. There are songs about that, and that would be true. Or I could say, hey, look, we learned a wonderful principle about seeing miracles happen. You know, Jesus thanked God, and then he broke the bread. So if you want to see a miracle in your life, have a thankful spirit. And that would be a wonderful principle as well. Nothing wrong with that. But actually, there's something going on here that um, is more, more serious and kind of disturbing that's taking place here. And I, I say it's kind of disturbing because if you take it to heart, it will disturb your soul. Because what's happening here is that we have a revolution that's starting. This is actually an event that's meant to kick off the Jesus revolution. And I'm not talking about the movie by that name. I'm talking about this very authentic revolution that Jesus is starting and that he invites all of his followers, that includes you and me if you call yourself a Christian, to be a part of. And part of our responsibility is to carry forward this revolution in our lifetime. And in essence, what I'm saying is Jesus has called you and me to be revolutionaries. And so the question is, will you come apart from this world? Will you come apart from our culture and will you decide to become one of his revolutionaries? You say, well, what does that mean? What kind, of, what kind of revolution is he leading? Well, I ask that question, I want to put on the screen a map. The reason I want to do this, this is a picture of Israel and what it looked like in Jesus' day. And the area that we're talking about where the story is happening is in the region of Galilee to the north of Israel. And the reason that's so important is because it was a hotbed for fanatics. It was a hotbed for revolutionaries. You see, in 722 B.C., the northern tribes of Israel, there were 10 of them, were basically scattered by the Assyrians. And from that moment on, it just seemed like wave after wave of invading armies would take over this entire area. And it's like the Jews lost their homeland as a result of it. The few who remained there and settled there, were disgruntled and unhappy. I mean, they were, at this point in time, they were under the oppression of Rome. They struggled to eke out a living. Taxes were heavy. And they were sick and tired of the pagan influence that was all around them. They wanted their homeland back, so to speak. And so you had a group of them that became known as the Zealots. And the Zealots were, were in essence, were like terrorists that worked against the Roman government to try to usher in a new era for Israel. And they were hoping for and praying for a messianic kind of figure who would show up and, and help lead their cause. And so you can imagine when they saw Jesus and heard Jesus and 
watched his miracles, you know, turning water into wine or multiplying the bread or raising the dead or curing the leper and doing all the kinds of things that Jesus did. It was like God had answered their prayers. Like, here is the guy. This guy will lead our revolution. So isn't it fascinating that Jesus shows up into this region He's got 5,000 men, that's a big army, right, that he's feeding and doing a miracle with, and then add their women and children. I mean, it's volatile. It's a volatile atmosphere. In fact, John, in his gospel, John chapter 6, where he describes this whole scene, he tells us that basically what happened is they, they got so excited about Jesus, they wanted to make him king. It says in John 6, 15, when Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Now think about this for a minute. If you've been living back then, wouldn't you have been excited too? If you were in their condition, facing what they were facing as a people, wouldn't you be all about voting for Jesus and wanting him to be your king? I mean, I think we can relate to that to some degree in our day and our age. Let's talk about uh, reality. Let's talk about the country we live in right now and the atmosphere that we're living in these days. I mean, don't you long for a leader to show up on the scene who will, you know, make wrong right? Uh, someone who will, you know, humanely but, but wisely deal with the border situation that we hear about all the time. Someone who will wisely deal with the issue of racism, somebody who will deal with the economy, somebody who will deal with, you know, wokeism, and, and somebody who will put us on a socially correct path. I mean, don't you, you know, don't you kind of long for that to happen? Am I right? Wrong. <laughs> wrong. And they were wrong in the kind of person they wanted and the kind of revolution they wanted. And so many of us, I'm sorry to say, are wrong in the kind of person that we're looking for and the kind of revolution that we want. You say, where are you going with that? I don't, know if I, I don't know if I like what you just said. Well, let me put it into a couple principles. For instance, Jesus will never bring the kind of re revolution the world, then and now, and listen, some Christians are looking for. He's going to be, he's going to disappoint a lot of us, if, if, he, you know, if we think he's going to bring the kind of revolution that so many people think our, our nation needs and the means by which they think it can happen. Let me read it one more time. Jesus will never bring the kind of revolution the world and some Christians are looking for. Instead, look at this principle. Jesus brings a revolution nobody expects, but everybody needs. He wants there to be a revolution. He wants there to be a revolution in America and Canada and France and England and Germany and Russia and China and Japan, wherever it is. He wants there to be a revolution. He, he started the revolution. He wants us to bring it, but not the way the world does it. Not the way the world does it. He's got an entirely different way or means by which he wants to do this. Look at verse 34. It says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Finish it with me out loud. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So he began teaching them many things. That passage of scripture, when, it said, you know, when Jesus saw them and said, look, they're like sheep without a shepherd, 
Jesus is actually taking that from the Old Testament. And I give you the reference, you can read it later on. It's found over in Numbers chapter 27, verses 15 through 17. It's actually a prayer, a prayer by Moses. Let me read it for you. Then Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, you are the God who gives breath to all creatures. In other words, you're the source of life. Please appoint a new man as a leader for the community. Give them someone who will guide them wherever they go and will lead them into battle so the community of the Lord will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? And you know, God heard Moses' prayer. God answered that prayer because he gave the people who? <clears throat> gave them Joshua. And Joshua becomes this great military leader who will lead the people of Israel into the promised land. They will conquer the promised land. They will defeat armies. They will take cities. And they will make it their own because God promised it to them. And Jesus quotes from that prayer. And he sees the people. He has compassion on them. But he's not there to lead them into battle. He's not like Moses that he's going to deliver them out of the grip of Rome. And he's not like Joshua where he's going to conquer the land and give it back to them. He's a different kind of Moses. He's a different kind of Joshua. He's come to deliver them from a far greater power, and that is the power of sin and death. And that's what he's come to deliver you and me from. And he's come not to conquer ter turf and territory. He's come to conquer our hearts and introduce his kingdom into our lives. And then he's called us and, he, and he's released us into this world then to lead this, this spiritual revolution someday. So let me remind you again of our principles. Jesus will never bring the kind of revolution the world and some Christians, many Christians in America, are looking for today. Instead, as I said, he did come to lead a revolution nobody, nobody expects, but everybody needs, but everybody needs. So the question is, well, what kind of revolution is that, and, and what does it look like? And to answer that question, we've got to go back into the story for a moment. And I just want to have you look in your Bibles at, at a couple of sentences. Look at verse 34. It says, and so he began to teach them many things. So he, he sees them like they're sheep without a shepherd. And it says he began to teach them many things. Verse 41, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. Now, in, in our world today, to this very moment, when people want to lead a revolution, whether, you know, it's in society, in our country, or some other country in the world, normally the revolutionary leaders will, will train and equip the revolutionaries that are going to join them with two things. One is, is what I would call words of violent, threatening rhetoric, right? Things to say, whether they're true or not, to kind of incite and gather people and build, you know, chaos and, and momentum. And then the second thing they'll do is they'll equip them with weapons. In ancient times, bows and arrows and spears and shields. In modern times, guns and, you know, bombs and the kinds of things that we see today. But you know what Jesus does? 
He shows up to lead this revolution, and what he does is he leads it with two things. First, and I brought my big honking Bible out, all right? First, with the word, okay, with the word. It says he sees their need, he sees them like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to preach or teach them his word. And then he calls his disciples together, and he equips them to be distributors of bread, bread distribution. There's another passage, the Bible says that at one point the disciples wanted to defend Jesus with swords. These guys wanted a sword in their hand. The zealots wanted a sword in their hand. And what does Jesus put in their hand? A loaf of bread. That had to be kind of like anticlimactic, you know, on guard. (laughs) Got my bread. And it feels silly, doesn't it? I mean, can you imagine going to work tomorrow or going to school? I see our students here tomorrow. Or going to gym or going to your neighborhood or going out into society and, and this is what you have to bring. The word of God and a loaf of bread. This is how Jesus says he changed the world. Word and bread, not politics not economics, not all the kinds of things our world is looking to. He says, you will change the world. You'll lead a revolution that involves both my word and the distribution of bread. See, the way Jesus changes the world is one life at a time. First, he changes our heart. When we acknowledge that we're sinners and we confess to him our sinfulness and we ask for his forgiveness, which he's already granted to us, and we let him wash away our guilt and our shame and, and his spirit comes into us and we begin to live by his truth. He begins to change us on the inside. Our thinking changes, our emotions change, our habits, our conduct changes, our relationships change. And that affects the people around us who affects other people around them. And soon you have a movement and then you have a revolution. And somewhere along the line, we've forgotten about that. Somewhere along the line, we've forgotten what it means to be the church. Their church has become a building, an institution that we attend. No, you and I, we are the church. We are the revolutionaries. That God is called to go into this world and bring change to this world. You know, when you and I think about bread, as uh, well-to-do Americans compared to the rest of the world, for, for you and me, bread is... Bread's like carbs, carbohydrates. In fact, there's some of you that if I said, you want this bread? You go, oh, no, 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 no. If they had, you know, nine seeds of grain in there and was a darker color, maybe I'd have a little bit of it. No, look at that white bread. Mm-mm, no, that's, that's not good. Give me a salad. I wouldn't say that. I love bread. But you know, in Jesus' day, listen, in Jesus' day, this is life and death. In Jesus' day, people live hand to mouth, day to day, never knowing when they're going to have another, you know, another piece of bread. This is life. And in some places of the world that I go on your behalf, like in Africa and other places of the world, folks, this is life to have a piece of bread. You're not going to starve today. So isn't it interesting that in John chapter 6, Jesus, in this, in this story, John gives us more commentary. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. 
Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. So Jesus says the way you start and lead this revolution is you, you have to take me in. You've got to take my life into your life. And the way, the way you lead the revolution is you let me live out of you. You offer my life to others so that their lives can be changed as well. That's what he's called you and me to do. I mean, think about it. What good would it have been if Jesus had led a political revolution? If he had taken his great power and, and allowed the, you know, Israel to have the land back and defeat the Romans, what good would that do? Because when they died, they would perish. For God so loved the world that he did not lead a political revolution. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be what? Might be saved. See, Jesus comes to meet our ultimate and greatest need. And when you look at our world right now and you're thinking, man, this world is so crazy. Why are, why are, the, you know, why are my, my peers at school or at, at, at work and when I turn the news on, our politicians, and well, I mean, what is all this weirdness that's going on, all this, this chaos, this dissatisfaction, this, you know, what's going on in our world right now? What's going on is our world's in convulsions right now because we know something's wrong, but we're looking to all the wrong places to find an answer. Looking to all the wrong places to find an answer. And, and you know, one of the things that should prove to us that God's word is true, that Christ is who he is, is the fact that nothing else works. Nothing else works. Everything we're trying doesn't work. There was an atheist uh, philosopher by the name of Jean-Paul Sartre. He was a French uh, philosopher that did not believe in God, but he says something really profound. And I want to quote it for you. He said this before he died. He said that God does not exist, I cannot deny. In other words, I don't believe God exists. I can't, you know, and I can't deny that. God does not exist. That God does not exist, I cannot deny. Now listen to this. That my whole being cries out for God, I cannot forget. Isn't that interesting? I don't believe in God, but there's something inside of me that keeps crying out for God. And that's our world today. We live in a world that, in a sense, you know, wants to say there's no God, or they want to dumb God down and make God more culturally acceptable, and none of it satisfies, and yet there's this longing in us that says something's not right. I need, I need God. But we keep looking in all the wrong places, and Jesus shows up and he says, look, I am the cure for your need for God. I alone, I alone have the answer that will heal you, that will mend your life and your marriage and your family, that will set a nation straight. Jesus is the answer. It's not a political figure. It's not a political party. Jesus is the answer. And his word is the answer. And, and his life is the answer for everything that we, that we need. So let me, let me remind you, what, what in essence have we learned so far? That Jesus gives life through his word. 
Because his word, right? Because Jesus preached. Remember, he preached the word because his word reveals the source of life. And that is him. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. But I want you to notice as well that Jesus also imparts life, not just through his words, but also through his actions. Have you ever... Have you ever wondered why Jesus did miracles? What's the point of a miracle? Why, why, do, people, why do people do spectacular things in our, in our society, whether it's celebrities or athletes or whatever? Why do, why do people do spectacular things? Oftentimes, it's to draw attention to themselves, right? And we go, ooh and ah, wow, see what he could do? I can't do that. See what she did? Oh, I wish I could do that. Wow, Right? Well, when Jesus does miracles, there's a sense, John tells us, that he does it to show that he's come from God. But the reason why Jesus does miracles is to draw our attention to his power to restore or to draw attention to his restorative power. Let me explain what I mean. You know, we look at at our world and oftentimes we'll talk about nature and we'll say well that's the nature of the beast or that's the nature of things he or she is just acting out their nature that creature is just acting out its nature and if something happens in in uh, nature like a disaster we'll say it's a natural disaster right and if you hear about something really miraculous oftentimes what we'll say is wow Nature was suspended so that something unnatural could happen. I want you to know that that's all wrong. I want you to know that the world that you and I are living in right now and what's happening around us is not natural. Everything that's happening around us right now is unnatural. It is unnatural to die. Did you hear that? If it was natural for us to die, we'd, all, we'd have no issue with it. Can you imagine how much money is spent trying to look young? <laughs> how much money is spent trying to defeat death? Sickness is unnatural. Poverty is unnatural. Racism is unnatural. Violence is unnatural. Murder is unnatural. All the things that are wrong with our world, they're all unnatural. So whenever Jesus does a miracle, here's what he's doing. He's suspending the unnatural, and he's doing the natural. In other words, when Jesus does a miracle, he's showing us the way it was all supposed to be in the first place till we messed it up. And he's showing us what it will be like someday when he returns. But in the meantime, he's called you and me as his followers to go into this world and continue to do miracles by acting and speaking in his name. We're to show the world the miracle of the natural. And the greatest miracle you and I bring to the world, listen to this, not raising the dead, not casting out demons, not healing people, the greatest miracle we do is when we live the life of Christ. When we just live and behave like Jesus in how we think and what we say and what we do and yes, God still does miracles, and I hear about it and see it all over the world. And we shouldn't be afraid of that.
But what Jesus does is not unnatural. What Jesus does is the way God has always wanted things to be. Now the question becomes, well, how, how can he do that through you and me? You know, we're so ordinary. We're, we're sinners who've been saved by grace. We still have a bit of a limp, right? We still struggle at times. How is it that God wants to use people like you and me? And there's something in this story that helps us understand the answer to that question. When the disciples come to Jesus, remember that crowd? And they're looking at their watches, although I'm sure they didn't have watches. And they realize the sun is going down. There could be as many as 10,000 people there. I take the Bible literally. And they're like, Jesus, um, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Uh, I, I think it might be a good idea to, it had been hard to tell the Lord, to let these people go. Like, can you imagine advising Jesus? I, I think you need to let him go. I think maybe you've taught long enough. And let him go into the various villages. The sun is going down. There's so many of them. They're getting hungry. And before the villages close up, they can go in there buy their food, Right? It's just a perfectly logical request. And, and I love Jesus' response. He just looks at them and he says, you feed him. And that had to be really overwhelming for them. Really? Us? How do you expect us to do that? Their, their request is logical. Jesus' request is illogical. It doesn't make any sense. Why does he do that? And why does he say to you and me, Go change the world. I don't know about you, but I look at the world today. I look at our society today, and to me, it seems like an impossibility. How about you? How are we ever going to turn this school around? How are we going to turn this society around? How are we going to turn this, you know, this neighborhood around? How are we going to change people's lives? We're too far gone. It seems like an impossibility. And humanly speaking, it probably is. But God, God seems to thrive in impossible situations. So you can jot this principle down if you want. Jesus most often chooses to work with what we already have. And a lot of times we feel like we have nothing for him to work with. I've just got five loaves of bread and two fish. And the Lord says, good. I mean, Jesus could have had angels set up a buffet behind all the people, but he didn't. He said, just give me what you have. And that's all God's asking from you personally. Give him what you have. And that's all he's asking from us collectively as a church, to give him what we have. And then God takes what we give him, and he does awesome things. Why? Last principle. Because Jesus loves to demonstrate his power through the weakness and lack of resources of his followers. Because he gets the glory. Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors and pastors, puts it like this. He says, if you go out knowing it's impossible, knowing you're unqualified, knowing it will take a miracle, and here's the important part, and you go out to do it anyway, then and only then will Jesus do his restoration work through you. Then you'll see miracles. It's like you go, I don't have much, but you told me to go, so we're going to go. Then Jesus is going to show up, so to speak. And then Keller goes on. I want to finish the rest of the quote for you. He says this. It's not God's intention that we should be in ourselves adequate to our tasks. 
Rather, he wants that we should be inadequate. If we only accept the tasks which we think are adapted to our powers, we are not responding to the call of God. And this is, so people like Cal and me, we love this part. Listen, the church is always in a crisis and always will be. There will be difficulties, limitations, insoluble problems, lack of people and money, a menacing outlook, endless misunderstandings and misrepresentations. We are not only to do our work despite the set things, they are precisely the conditions requisite for the doing of it. I love that. <laughs> because what Keller's saying is what we know from the scriptures. You're always going to have problems. You're always going to lack resources. You're always going to feel like you're not big enough, that you don't have enough. And that's the way God has always intended it to be, from Genesis to Revelation. Look at Israel. Look at the church. It's what he's always expected. Why? Because then we'll look to him, and then he'll show up. Folks, God is giving you and me an opportunity to lead a revolution in the Twin Cities. And there are things happening right now that you don't even know about through Whitdale Church. And that's why I've asked Pastor Kyle to come up and tell us how we can get in and lead this revolution. Kyle?